Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Monday, and hoping you all had a very pleasant weekend as we kick off another week of Cresta in the Afternoon, talking about the things that matter most. Of course, this is not Al's voice. This is Brian Shanley, his producer, just filling in on the opens and closes. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow with a regular Cresta in the Afternoon program for you. But today we've got a lot to talk about, including a... uh, We'll be hearing a commentary from Al in this first segment that... It's kind of a strange topic. This is a story I actually, uh, as you know, one of my roles as a producer is just to monitor different news sites every morning and show him some things that might be worth an interview or might be worth commentary. Sometimes it's really big stories like what's happening in Israel or something like that. Other times it's just a little headline that kind of catches your interest. And I'll just say, oh, I wonder if Al can do anything with this. So this is back in the spring in uh, Berlin, in Germany. They changed a law so that women can be topless at public pools just like men are. And this is all in the name of equality. And uh, it was seen as some great victory. But what lessons from that, without getting into the more like risque elements of that story, what can we learn about that, about the state of our society when something as stupid as that is seen as this great victory? Um, what kind of society, society sees that as a victory and not as a decline? Uh, Al discusses that in this first segment. And then we'll sit down with Father Dave Pavanka of um, Franciscan University of Steubenville, talking about metanoia and finding true fulfillment in Christ. Early in Mark's Gospel, Jesus calls to us to repent, or in the Greek word, metanoia. But the word repent doesn't capture the full meaning of metanoia. It's not a one-time event. It's more than just going to that confessional. It's an ongoing process that takes our entire lives to complete. And we'll talk about living metanoia in our everyday lives with Father Dave Pavanka, the author of the book, Living Metanoia, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in Christ. As I said, he's president of Franciscan University of Steubenville and has been a spiritual director and retreat leader for more than 30 years. Also created a 10-part video series on metanoia, which you can find on his blog at thewildgooseisloose.com. And we'll, of course, have that linked for you in the Christ Guest archives. In the next hour, another commentary from Al on the new Tower of Babel. What does that mean? He will explain that. And also we'll discuss lay vocation with Father Brent Bowen. Uh, The church simply cannot reach its full apostolic effectiveness unless each of the baptized effectively discerns his or her personal vocation. And that vocation goes far beyond discerning whether we're simply called to be a single, married, or religious life. Doing all of this, we will talk with Father Brent Bowen. Also, before we go to the news, um, one thing that you likely heard in the news over the weekend was the death of Matthew Perry, best known for his role on the uh, show Friends. I don't know much about it. That wasn't a show I ever really watched. But there's been some interesting things uh, coming out in the day or two since his death. Uh, He struggled for many years with various kinds of addictions. And in his book, he writes, My name is Matthew. You may know, know me by another name, referring to Chandler on the TV show. My friends call me Maddie, and I would be, I should be dead. People would be surprised to know I have been mostly sober since 2001, save for about 60 or 70 little mishaps over the years. 
Also in his book, he writes about an experience where he was uh, in the depths of depression and reached out to God and got some kind of answer. Where exactly he ended up spiritually, I'm not sure. But one thing he does say that really struck me is that he says, if somebody came up to him and said, I can't stop drinking, can you help me? I want to say yes and follow up and do it. When I die, I don't want friends to be the first thing that's mentioned. I want it to be the fact that I was helping other people. That is, uh, show that he did so have some understanding of what real success is. It's beyond just worldly achievements. And we'll have that uh, story linked for you at our website. But first, let's go to the news. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, October 30th. It's the Feast of St. Angelus of Aukri. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. The first part of the Synod on Synodality's two-part assembly concluded. The 42-page report calls for greater co-responsibility among all believers. It includes notable proposals to establish new ministries for the laity, increase lay involvement in decision-making, create processes to evaluate bishops' performance of their ministry, and change the way the Church discerns controversial issues. The report will be used as a working document at Part 2 of the Synod on Synodality next October. Humanitarian aid is flowing into Gaza as the war between Israel and Hamas moves forward. State Department spokesman Matt Miller said 150 trucks have made their way into Gaza from Egypt over the past week. We recognize the needs are immense and we want to see sustained daily deliveries of food, water and medical supplies into Gaza. He added that U.S. officials are pressing Israel to restore access to water and telecommunications in the region. Former President Donald Trump and his three children will soon testify in his New York civil fraud trial. Well, the state attorney general's office says Donald Trump Jr. will take the stand Wednesday, while Eric Trump will testify Thursday and Ivanka Trump on Friday. Trump's sons are executives with the Trump Organization, and Ivanka is a former executive. The former president himself, he's expected to take the stand November 6th. The state attorney general is seeking a $250 million fine and a ban on Trump doing business in New York State after accusing the former president of inflating his assets to get more favorable loans. Trump denies wrongdoing. Scott Tringle, NBC News Radio, New York. And COVID mass requirements are likely a thing of the past on commercial flights. The Senate has passed an amendment to a spending bill that bans federal funds from being used to enforce face-covering mandates on public transportation. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Well, thanks for joining me today. Last week, my producer, Brian Shanley, slid a CNN news story from Germany across my desk, and the headline read like this. Women can now swim topless in Berlin's swimming pools. Hmm. Chalk up another victory for the patriarchy. This is the type of female emancipation men will overwhelmingly approve. The lead went on to say, Women in Berlin can now swim topless in the city's public pools if they choose to, just as men can. Wow. How, How do we neglect such a glaring injustice for so long? You know, we're the only animals on earth that wear clothes. Of course, I'm not counting those cats and monkeys who perform on the Internet. But the cultural meanings assigned to clothing are intriguing, and there are many. But the article never even considers that traditional modesty, with all of its variations, may embody some deep, enduring wisdom. The reporter isn't curious, because for him, it's simple fairness although it's the kind of fairness demanded by children. Johnny gets to take his shirt off, so why can't I? Well, there are actually very interesting reasons. Once you decide to get beyond a child's facile understanding of fairness, 
But no, this reporter is like the explorer who came upon a fence or a wall and before asking why it was there, just knocked it down and then moved forward in the name of progress. It's very foolish to knock down walls until you know why someone built them in the first place. For all the writer knows, he's just entered Jurassic Park. People operating in the mainstream or legacy media, activists of the far left, far right, the officials in the story, certainly the topless women, and presumably the majority of CNN's viewers, share a powerful assumption. It's my life, and I'll do what I want. Now, a more elite phrase, more sophisticated phrase, is to talk about the autonomy of the individual. Doesn't sound as crass as, it's my life and I'll do what I want. But personal autonomy is taken from two Greek words, autonomy meaning self-law. And even the U.S. Supreme Court has defined liberty in a way that seems to affirm the superiority of individual autonomy. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. End quote. In other words, reality is self-defined, at least when it comes to questions of existence, meaning, the universe, and the mystery of human life. It's a council of despair. Humans don't share, according to the Supreme Court statement, humans don't share any objective meaning or morality. This was first used, by the way, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which reaffirmed the Roe decision. It was, a, uh, it was reaffirmed in Lawrence v. Texas, the landmark decision that led to homosexual, eventually led to homosexual marriage. And I'd say, I think you would search in vain to find a more apt description of our secular age. Our culture has lost the capacity to imagine any shared meaning that is transcendent to the self. Biblical people, on the other hand, uh, have heard, seen this before. Uh, look at the book of Judges. The key phrase in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what Scripture calls the problem that led to the social chaos in the land of Israel during that period. It was before they had a king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Biblical people today have actually been warning America for a few generations now about the cultural chaos that follows from self-law, from the autonomy of the individual, from everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. When people say, it's my life and I'll do what I want, they produce one type of culture. When people say, it's my life and I'll do what God wants, they produce another type of culture. Abortion is about autonomy. Physician-assisted suicide is ultimately about autonomy, with a little help. Homosexual marriage is about exercising autonomy. And now, transgender advocates want to extend autonomy to adolescents. So before adolescents can marry or drink or vote, they may be able to permanently alter their bodies. It's their life. Let them do what they want. I'm not denying the reality of gender dysphoria, a Christian clinician, Dr. Mark Yarhouse, has been a pioneer in the field for decades. But I also know that we are still very uncertain about many aspects of psychosexual development. 
we are going off in an experiment. We don't even know how sexual identity and sexual orientation develops. So England finally came to its senses in October, and the National Health Service there changed their transitioning policy, at least for the time being. Why? Too much was unknown. Hillary Cass, former president of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, speaking on behalf of the National Health Service, wrote this, quote, We do not fully understand the role of adolescent sex hormones in driving the development of both sexuality and gender identity through the early teen years. So, by extension, we cannot be sure about the impact of stopping these hormone surges on psychosexual and gender maturation. In many cases, gender-variant behavior or feelings disappear as children reach puberty. I'm continuing to quote her here. Little is known about the long-term side effects of hormone or puberty blockers in children with gender dysphoria. It's also not known whether hormone blockers affect the development of the teenage brain. We do know that gender-reforming hormones can cause some irreversible changes, such as breast development, caused by taking estrogen, breaking or deepening of the voice, caused by taking testosterone, and further, long-term cross-sex hormone treatment may cause temporary or even permanent infertility. End quote. Why the rush to provide so-called gender-affirming treatment when there are so many empirical questions about psychosexual development that remain unanswered. It's crazy. But that's what happens when autonomy reigns. It's my life, and I'll do what I want. You know, how we got here is a fascinating story. Uh, We don't have time to tell it right now, but I can assure you, we didn't get here by chance. We got here by the calculations of movement organizers in league with macromedia and the entertainment industries, uh, also in league with the uh, academic world. Rita, there's a book called After the Ball, which describes the plan. It's written by two gay activists, and it describes the plan that they laid out to move America towards acceptance of same-sex marriage. A similar book is going to be written about the drive towards transgenderism. Ironically, this emphasis on individual autonomy is a terrible distortion of the old American ideal of ordered liberty. Let me quote a passage from the Old Covenant Law, which makes it clear that personal autonomy, it's my life and I'll do what I want, is not how biblical people govern themselves. Deuteronomy 10. Hear, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? but to love and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. For the Lord shows no partiality, and he accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant and the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are immigrants and aliens, for you yourselves were once aliens in Egypt. End quote. Those are the concerns that motivate biblical people. We don't say, it's my life and I'll do what I want. It's my life and I'll do what God wants. America started out as an experiment in ordered liberty, not individual autonomy. The Founding Fathers to a Man believed that civil liberty could not be maintained without a virtuous citizenry. John Adams said that our Constitution was made for a religious people and was unsuitable for another. 
Washington in his farewell address said that religion and morality were the indispensable supports to civic freedom. And the phrase, righteousness exalts a nation from Proverbs 14.34, was ubiquitous in sermons, political speeches, tavern conversations. They had automobiles, if they had automobiles, it would have been a bumper sticker. Of course, I suppose they could always slap it on the behind of a horse. But this is not to say that colonial America was virtuous. But they were represented by leaders who knew that virtue was the necessary precondition for political liberty. That America and those American leaders are long gone, and it's not coming back. And we have no choice. We can lay down, of course, before these hard times, or we can push forward. Abortion, assisted suicide, gay marriage, transgenderism, the breakdown of the family, the loss of shared values with our countrymen. Don't think that we have lost. We shouldn't be thinking we have lost. We haven't lost. Our neighbors, our countrymen have lost. They've chosen the false god of self-law. They've chosen the false god of individual autonomy rather than the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it means that the community they're building will fall apart. We are building a different community rooted in Christ. We are made members of it by baptism. And we look forward to seeing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As we stay faithful, we have won because we're bearing witness to that kingdom that Jesus promises will bring human beings to fullness of life. And as we stay faithful, especially in Eucharistic communion, we are building a people oriented to what God wants rather than what I want. Our job is to build the church, and that's the way we can bless the nation. We only lose when we deny that he's at work building a distinct people in this culture for purposes we can't yet know. Just who is to blame for Jesus' crucifixion? The Church blames you, me, and all sinners for the suffering of the Savior, says the Catholic Catechism. We would like to heap all the blame on the Jews of Jesus' era and forget our own guilt. But the Church will not allow it. We are reminded that Christ came to save all sinners through all ages. Moreover, the Church points out our responsibility is even greater than the Jews of Jesus' day. We know who Jesus is. Many of them did not. They acted out of ignorance. Every time we sin now, we wound the Lord again in our hearts, which is where he lives, an awesome and sorrowful thought. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. We listen to all kinds of things, as the Pope says. The radio, the TV, we listen to our phones, all kinds of other messages. But are we silencing ourselves enough that we may listen for God? The other thing we need to do is continue to educate ourselves on the faith. Are we listening to Catholic programming on a regular basis? Are we attending really good, healthy, faith-filled conferences to learn more from those who may be scripture scholars or apologists or maybe just a good talk from a spiritual leader or maybe watching a good video of a wonderful priest such as a Father John Ricardo or a Bishop Barron or someone else? So continue to, as Father John Harden used to say, 
educate, educate, educate yourself in the Catholic faith. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. He is only one of four popes honored as the great. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Leo I was pope at a time when Roman civilization was being overrun by barbarian armies. He stood as a light in the darkness and even saved the city of Rome from destruction by Attila and the Huns. Leo died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. This program brought to you by the following nonprofit company. From a firm films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. Can we, can we Look at the star. This is it. You truly believe that this child is the chosen one. What is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere, November 10th. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. At the very beginning of the Gospels, you'll hear uh, both John the Baptist and Jesus calling us to a radical new way of life. They are manifesting or revealing the kingdom of God, it's at hand, but coupled with the idea of the kingdom or the aspiration to see the kingdom is the command, repent and believe in the gospel. That word repent is one of those words uh, in the Greek New Testament that carries a lot of freight. And uh, it is, in some ways, it's simple to understand, but it's incredibly profound and very deep uh, in our understanding. My guest, Father Dave Pavanka, is the author of Living Metanoia, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in Christ. Uh, Father Dave is president of the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He has, for 30 years, been serving as a spiritual director, a retreat leader, formation director. He's also created a 10-part video series on metanoia, which is our topic today. And you can view at his website uh, the work of uh, this 10-part uh, video series on metanoia. It's at the website, thewildgooseisloose.com, and it'll be linked at our website as well. Father, good to have you back here. Thanks. That's nice to be back with you. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, Good. Let's let's just go to the word. It's a a Greek word. Um, What is metanoia? 
Yeah. Well, first off, I like the what you said. You said it carries a lot of freight. And yeah. I was just, I've never heard that term before, and that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's a it's a really really powerful word. Um, it means, as you stated, uh, in that particular instance, it is uh, qualified as repent. So repent is a part of it, but it's only a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really means to turn, to change, to change direction. Uh, to think differently, uh, to behave differently. And it's the other thing is it's not a singular event. The word is, it's this ongoing movement, this process of, the word that we might use more today would be the word conversion. Mm -hmm. So the metanoia and the idea of conversion, this continual process, uh, are are quite similar and quite unique. Uh, So this turning uh, is... Is ongoing. It's just we talk about ongoing yes. conversion, which is ongoing right. turning, ongoing metanoia. Right. Um, it is. It, this is an important point because uh, I know for many years I was part of a, a Christian tradition, which tended to look upon repentance as uh, connected with a particular moment. Um, which was a lot. Again, a lot of effort was spent trying to bring people to that point of commitment, conversion, uh, turning, metanoia, repentance, but there wasn't that much emphasis upon um, uh, repentance as an ongoing uh, act right. in one's life. Uh, right, right, right. What, what, it, you, go ahead, you're going to go well, somewhere. And that's an important, I, honestly, yeah. Al, that's a really important point, is that, is that the, the life of a disciple is this continual process of deeper conversion, deeper repentance. Like I think in my own life, when, you know, when I was 20 years old, uh, my confessions are different now than they are, you know, now that I'm yeah. 56 years old. So that, that the closer, please, Lord, the closer we come to the Lord, we, we recognize things and we see things and we understand things that, that continually brings us to conversion. And it's interesting, because when we use the word conversion, we often think of, you know, a Protestant having a conversion to become a Catholic or something right. like that. Right. Well, what we look at is a singular event, and that's really not what, what this word is. It's, it's much deeper, more ongoing, more driving you each each way. So one of the things I, I actually, I just also released a book on the same topic. It's, it's the, the same issue, and, and that is... The, the, each time we, we experience metanoia, um, conversion, repentance, it ought to bring our, us closer to Jesus, closer to the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that's a lifelong journey, thank the Lord. I mean, the fact that somebody would say, you know, I'm done with it, well, that's, that's silly to say that we're done in, in our <laughs> right. opportunity. But I remember one time I, I mentioned to some of my students here at Franciscan University, they were coming in as freshmen, and I said, my, my desire is that you guys experience conversion. Well, they shared with me later that they walked out of that meeting frustrated. They said, well, you know, why would Father Dave said conversion? We've already been converted. Well, as seniors, they came back to me, and they said, we understand what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, my guest, again, Father Dave Pabanka, he's the author recent, most recently of Living Metanoia. It's, uh, again, a, uh, a volume which is connected to his 10-part video series, uh, and you can view the series at thewildgooseisloose.com. You mentioned Jesus, of course, and that is the one thing necessary, is conformity to Christ and his kingdom. So uh, you begin, uh, your episode one of the series is uh, asking that question, who do men say that I am? Um, right. And that's, uh, it makes sense that we do that, but it is interesting that 
general impression, and I would venture to say many uh, younger Catholics also are uh, have a problem with this. There, there are many Jesuses out there in the world. You know, there are many um, sure. concepts, many notions about Jesus. What uh, would you have us focus in on when we think of who is Jesus? Yeah, and that's a great question. For those who happen to watch the video series that we filmed, uh, the whole series was done in Israel. So this particular episode was filmed in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asks, I think, the most fundamental basic question. Because he asked two things. Who do people say that he is? And that's important for us to be able to dialogue and discuss that. And then ultimately makes it much more personal. But who do you say that I am? <laughs> that's right, yeah. And, that's, and, and honestly, Al, I think that's at the heart of this series is is getting past perceptions, understandings, baggage, freight that you mentioned, um, that, that we carry about who is Jesus, right? And, and some of them not, just not accurate. You know, again, who, who did they think, and why is it important that, that they did this at Caesarea Philippi? Because it was a place of false idols. And it was a place that had all kinds of images and statues of false gods and false idols. There was one of Caesar. So Jesus is at that place that was understood at the beginning, in Jesus' time, a place of worship of false idols. He says, okay, we ask you there. He asks them there for that purpose. Who do you say that I am? In essence, saying, who are the false idols in your life? You know, some people have made, even Jesus in one sense, a false idol that, mm-hmm. that he's just like um, this, this everything is wonderful and nice and hug and everything that he's never going to actually ask anything difficult of us, which I spent a whole chapter on that, that some of the things that Jesus asks are profoundly difficult, right? So this idea that we have of Jesus, this idea that Jesus is harsh or he's mad at us or he's, you know, whatever it is. So that is where the, this metanoia is important, is that we come to understand more deeply who Jesus is, not our image of Jesus, and not even mom and dad's image of Jesus, but the Scriptures and being rooted in the Scriptures, who is he? And that's, that's this most fundamental basic question that each one of us needs to be able to answer. Um, th- and this question is also connected to the idea of inheriting eternal life, right? Because Jesus... Sure. Um, he, 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 um, I, I, the king and the kingdom are very closely connected here. <laughs> so sure, it's, sure. it's important no, to get exactly. his identity right. But when you exactly. get his identity right, you get his life right. That's right. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I mean, that he is, as he says, that he is the anointed one. I mean, Peter was right. He didn't fully understand it, but you are the Christ, right. you know? You are the anointed one. You are our hope, our salvation. You are the Redeemer. Not a hope, not a Redeemer, but you are the Redeemer. Yeah. And and this is this is what we have to get back to, because I think all too often we have this image of Jesus that is largely being perpetrated by the media or by the culture, and and this is where I spend a lot of time in this in the book, is that, you know, we live in a world that, we live in a world that says the, the greatest crime or sin or whatever is to offend somebody. Well, <laughs> if we pay attention to the Scriptures, yeah. Jesus offended people, yeah. you know? Yeah. I love the Scripture where he says, you know, when you say that, you offend us. He's talking about the doctors. He said, oh, get ready, there's more where that came from, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, that's very good. I um, when somebody asks that, uh, when somebody gets awakened spiritually and they begin to realize there's more to this world than meets the eye, and they begin, they want to know um, how how can I connect 
with this reality, which is much greater than myself. I know it's there. What Jesus is one of the great religious teachers out there. What makes him different than these other teachers? Yeah. Why should he be the one that I go to? Yeah, the way you ask the question is really beautiful, actually. This, this sense of an awakening, and that's this metanoia, this awakening that there's something more than I understood, that there's something more here. I mean, why, why, what makes him different? I mean, obviously because he was the, the anointed one. He's the one who was crucified for my sins and broke the, the power of sin and the power of death. So Jesus' resurrection wasn't just a nice ending of the story. It profoundly right. made everything different, right? Mm-hmm. Because his bones are not in any grave. And that it was this, this validation of everything that he had said earlier, that, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? That's not to say that, that people don't die, obviously, but with with the resurrection of the dead, that my sins are forgiven. And and, and not just that, I, I spent a chapter on, on Jesus, how he reveals his Father. I mean, that's something very unique to Jesus, mm-hmm. that he speaks of a God who is a Father, and then we begin to understand that God is triune, that, that the Spirit of God animates this awakening and moves us in this. But but we have to be, something has to stir in our heart that says, as you alluded to, that there's something more. Yeah. There's something more that's going on here. You have a phrase in the beginning uh, of the book where you mentioned a seminary professor you had that said, uh, we have a Jesus-shaped God. That's a right. great line. And uh, right. elaborate on that a bit. Well, and just that, there's the, when we begin to talk about the divine or the supernatural, it's not... It's not just this vague power source illumination, but it's it's a person. The the Jesus, the person, the Christ, the anointed one, the holy one, the Son of God, both God and both man, that that is the beginning of our conversation about who God is. And and what does it mean to be in relationship with this God? That and I love the the image that Paul when he goes to Athens and he's walking around. He said, "You have this tomb of the unknown God. I can tell you that that unknown God has a face, yeah. and he's yeah. a person, and he has a name, and he has a story. Uh, that's <laughs> that was radically different to their and during their time, and it's radically true for our time as well. Yeah, indeed, that's the case. My guest, Father Dave Pavanka, is the author of Living Metanoia: Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in Christ. It's part of a ten-part video series uh, called Metanoia: Turning, Conversion, Ongoing Repentance. You can view it at his website, thewildgooseisloose.com. We're going to continue on the other side of the break. And, of course, the book will be available in the online bookstore. You'll be able to connect uh, to the Tempar video series at our website as well. Stay with me. We've got another segment coming up. your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. 
It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We get what we look for. St. Therese of Lisieux has an interesting insight on this. Once in a discussion over the possibility of avoiding purgatory, the future saint told another member of her community, Sister Maria Fabronia, that God was more father than judge. And in this discussion, debate, she finally took the liberty of saying to the other sister, If you look for the justice of God, you will get it. The soul will receive from God exactly what she desires. Are we full of wounds and anger and hurt, and do we want to inflict that on other people? Are we allowing God to heal us? If we receive his mercy, we have to show it to others. The Beatitudes are the heart of Jesus' message. Let's be transformed by them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. We Catholics have lots of ways to pray. Novenas, litanies, meditations, you name it, we've got it. With so many ways to pray, there's sure to be a way that fits your family. No matter how you pray, though, it's important to remember why we pray. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, prayer is, quote, a vital and personal relationship with the living and true God, close quote. When we sit down to pray as a family, We're not just checking off another chore on our to-do list. We're helping one another deepen our relationship with God and each other. If you're not sure where to begin, try this. Before meals and family gatherings, say, let's remember to take a moment to be in God's presence. And then take even 30 seconds to praise God, to thank Him, and to ask for His grace and blessing for your family. For more ideas about praying with your family, visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Dave Pabanka. He is president of the Franciscan University of Steubenville and author of Living Metanoia, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in Christ, metanoia being the uh, phrase and the the word in the Greek New Testament meaning conversion, turning, repentance. And we've been uh, really plumbing the depths of uh, that word as a call to ongoing uh, conversion, ongoing repentance in our life. 
And, uh, you know, I was thinking, uh, I was speaking to a, a group of college students, like father, uh, up at Boyne Mountain, and uh, we were talking about uh, grace and uh, the relationship between grace and uh, faith and works and the Catholic formula of salvation by grace through faith, working in love. And somebody said, well, you know, it sounds to me, on the one hand, you're stressing God's love for us, his grace is sufficient for us, uh, and then you slap on these commandments. It's like you give me something in one hand and take it back the other. What's the relationship between God's uh, grace towards us and also his expectation that we live according to the commandments? Yeah, the the text that comes to my mind is for, from First John that says, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." Yeah. Is is that there's something that moves in our heart, and it's it's and it's one of the things that Paul speaks about. It's not simply an obedience questions, although that's a part of it. And mm-hmm. sometimes we need to be faithful simply out of obedience, right, you right. know. And there's that that's a part. But then there's something deeper that that I'll do things and please Lord that I did things for my parents. Because I deeply loved them, you know, and, and I wanted, it was a way of honoring them. It was um, ultimately believing that they had my well-being in, in, in mind for them. So I think that, that that's at the heart of it is oftentimes we forget that relationship or that understanding about following the commandments and loving loving God. It's it's what I, in the second, actually the second chapter, the second video of Metanoia, I talk about, first it's, who do you say that I am? But then the next one is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's yeah. the young man that runs up, he's wealthy, and he goes up to Jesus, so what do I have to do? And And I think this is important for us, because Unfortunately, I think if we were to ask a large percentage of Catholics, what do you have to do to go to heaven? Some of the answers they would be was, well, you go to Mass, you tithe, these right. things are all very important, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, they they don't mention Jesus, right? right? And, right. and, and ultimately, it's, it's following Jesus. But the first thing he says is, he says, follow the commandments, right? Follow the commandments. The, the, the commandments are not antiquated. It's not, those aren't just yesterday, that, that there's something central to us following Jesus to following the commandments. And then he says, and then give up all that you have and follow me. Now, granted, that was the call that the Lord gave for him. But even in that, Jesus says about how do you have to do inherit, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Follow the commandments. Yeah. 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 The other part, and, and we know this, but they're, they're protective. You know, the commandments aren't oppressive, they're protective. They, the, the, to the degree that I'm more faithful to following the commandments, my life has a greater peace, it has a greater presence, it has a greater purpose. The commandments provide us that. Very good. Uh, you, you have mentioned in the book here, uh, you got a, a line of thought, which I wanted to make sure we get to, and, and that is, um, you've got the story in Mark's Gospel where James and John ask Jesus, if they can sit on his right and left in heaven. And in response, Jesus asks them, are you able to drink the chalice that I drink? And the two of them confidently say, we are able. And (laughs) you point out, too, that you love the fact that they say, we are able, rather than I am able. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and and I think it it is, yeah, just as, if we pay attention in the Scriptures, Jesus almost always sends people out in groups. 
um, because he knows that we need that. I, I think I, I share a story that I had the opportunity a number of years ago to walk the Camino. I walked that 500 miles across yeah. Spain, and I walked it with one of my brothers, with one of the other friar priests. Well, there were days that I felt like quitting, and he'd say, oh, come on, we can we can keep going, and, and vice versa, that, that this relationship we have with another disciple, another believer, another person that has the same goals, I want to go to heaven, I want to be a saint, um, we can do this together. But you know, if anybody who's who's gone through suffering and difficulty, one of the oppressive natures of that is you just feel so alone, yeah, like nobody absolutely. understands or nobody sees. So when Jesus says, when he's obviously, can you drink of the cup? He's speaking of the cup of suffering, and they say we can, and and I don't know if they understood how how prophetic that was, right? But right. that that if I know that that I'm walking with somebody, I'm I'm more able to drink of that cup. Yeah. You tell the story, too, that you met this elderly couple who were making, uh, walking the Camino for the second time. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's amazing. Tell me a little bit about them. Well, that in itself, I, they, they were really a remarkable couple. They were from Brazil. They were walking it the second time, which I think is funny because people always ask me, are you going to do it again? No, no. It was <laughs> a, a great experience, but once was plenty. But they, they were both around 70 years old. But really the most amazing thing was the gentleman was blind. And there was just something watching he with his wife with his hand on her shoulder. But but that's at the at the heart of the spiritual life. I remember yeah. you know, a student of mine saying, Father Dave, you tell me to walk, but I have no idea where I'm going. And, and that's sometimes we've all felt that way before, you know? We think we're on the path, we're just not positive, and we need somebody that we can place our hand on their shoulder, and we can say, you can walk with me, and someday it's going to be, I'm going to be the one that I need a shoulder to place my hand on, and sometimes it'll be me that says, go ahead and put your hand on my shoulder, but that is the nature of being Catholic. One of the things I love about being Catholic is we we focus and we give great attention to the body of Christ, that we are in this together as a body, and, and we encourage and support one another, and unfortunately, some sometimes uh, dry each other away, but yeah. the goal is to really walk with one another. Uh, later on, uh, jumping, on, jumping ahead here in, in the book, Living Metanoia, my guest, by the way, uh, Father Dave Pavanka, president of the Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're looking at the book that accompanies his uh, 10-part video series called Metanoia, which can be viewed at his website, thewildgooseisloose.com. You probably should tell people again why you have such a strange name on your website. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, the first series I did was a series we called The Wild Goose, and I've gotten so many questions about that. But it was actually the term that the ancient Celts used for the Holy Spirit, uh, that that the Spirit isn't something that can be tamed, but there's a wildness, and, and that's, I think it's really beautiful. That's so great. it wasn't anything disrespectful. It was the ancient Celts that used the term long before, long before I was around. You point out that when we're hungry for too long, it impacts the way we act. Uh, we get impatient, we get rude, uh, we get grouchy. And uh, for those who are really hungry, even starving, they get frantic, desperate, um, despair, uh, frightened, uh, uh, irrational, irrational. Take connect that with a with the spiritual hunger uh, that we have. Yeah, yeah, and I talk about that at Jesus when he when he feeds the five thousand. Um, you know that if we pay attention, Jesus at one time just trying to get away from the crowds. Which there's something to that, right? That even Jesus took some time to get away from the crowds, and I think that's important. Yeah. But he looks upon them with pity uh, and looks upon them with love and realizes 
that ultimately they're starving. And, and, and he feeds them, but he goes on to say, you know, you can't follow me just because I did this miracle, but you follow me because I can ultimately feed you so that you, you don't have to be hungry again, or you don't have to be thirsty again, that, that our heart continually be, is, is satisfied. And, and he obviously satisfies that in the Eucharist. But even to that end, I say that that's an area that we need conversion for, that that at Jesus' time, um, people walked away from him. Yeah. And, and it's important that we look at that, that Jesus let them walk away. There's a lot of debate about the Eucharist right now and people coming to the Eucharist and are they worthy to Eucharist. But the reality is, is, is at that point, people walked away. And I'm sure there were probably some that said, oh, come on, Jesus, you know, lighten up. But, right. but he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to change that. That there, It was so important that he was willing to have and allow people to walk away because he knew that the only way they were going to be satisfied, the only way that they were going to be fed was if they were able to receive his body and his blood. Yeah. It, is, it is amazing that, um, you know, as, as John's penning that gospel, uh, he's generally, generally people think it's the last of the gospels that were actually, was actually committed to writing, but by that time there's already been a generation of uh, a Christian experience of the Eucharist. Sure. And I, I just think, I, can, I just try to put myself in his position as he's telling that story, and how tempting it, it, it would have been, had he not had direct experience, how tempting it would have been to kind of soften the darn thing. Um, sure, sure. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look, the, the, sure. people are going to misunderstand, uh, you know. Sure. It doesn't make sense. It's scandalous. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. outrageous. Absolutely. You're, Al, Al, that's a phenomenal point. Yeah. And, and, and that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Yeah. Right? There's still a population that says to... to tone it down a little bit, don't take it so serious, it's a symbol, and yeah, and this is, again, this is where uh, it's, yeah, I talk about the, the scripture says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that that this is a crazy, unbelievable, greater than we could imagine claim, that, that God would come to himself, that, that Francis would, St. Francis would be in awe that God would humble himself and come to us in what appears look to look like bread. Yeah. That's a pretty remarkable claim. It is. It is. Um, you focus in on, on chapter 7. You talk about being called and chosen. And I wanted to ask you, if um, over your years of ministry, you've noticed that uh, more and more Catholics are becoming aware that they have a sense of personal call, in a sense of mission, a sense of giftedness, um, and if that's becoming more, or is that more common than, say, 30 years ago? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I would say in some, yeah, I would say probably across, well, let me, how can I put it? I think with a certain population it is, and it's becoming more dominant. Mm -hmm. So you've got a population that are encountering Christ and coming to understand what it is to be in relationship with Him. Uh, and then, and then, what is their vocation? It's interesting to think that word vocation because we often equate it as vocation. What's your vocation to be married or to be a priest? Right. But the Holy Father John Paul, when he wrote this document on to the uh, Christian faithful, he spoke of this idea of personal vocation again in this process of continually coming to understand yes. what is the mission that the Lord gives us, and that's not a singular event. That you know, my mom and dad's mission, who they're both in their mid eighties, is quite different than it was 
30 years ago when they were more active. But that continual coming to understand what is the mission, what is the vocation, that, that's the language that John Paul used. Um, I think that, that there is a population that's becoming more aware of it. We're actually starting a new program at the university here at Franciscan University, you know, an entire office on personal vocation. Really? And coming to understand that very, yeah, that very issue in, in the light of your education, but it's not just an intellectual endeavor. Right. It's a mission that the Lord has that's unique for each one of us in helping our students discover that. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I was blessed way back in 1974 when I was given the grace of a very strong sense of call and mission. Uh, it, was, it was a broad call, but it was there. It was simply to spend my life in some way uh, disseminating uh, the gospel. Or I sold books for 10 years. I mean, that's what I was, as Christian books. And I thought, well, that's fine. And then I was asked to start, uh, you know, doing a little Bible study teaching thing, eventually asked to pastor a church, eventually asked to do radio. And here I am, uh, towards, I guess you have to say, I'm getting old now. And that's all I've been doing all my <laughs> you life. You that I didn't say that. <laughs> but I do, I, all I can say is that it was so, I, I was so blessed to have that early on in life. And thankfully a wife that saw it too. And she helped me stay faithful to that. And I just would wish that same uh, clarity for uh, young men and young women today. So it's very important to me. Father, can you stay just another minute? Sure. Okay, we'll be back on the other side of the break. Father Dave Pavanka, president of the Franciscan University of Steubenville, my guest. Nigeria has become one of the worst places in the world for Christian persecution and it's common practice for terrorist groups to kidnap religious sisters, seminarians, or priests and hold them for ransom until their orders pay the money to get them free. And the last poll of the week, we wanted to know if you think that's a good idea. And about 75% said it's not a good idea and only increases kidnappings in the future. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and go down to the poll of the week. Is social media leading to more young women getting cosmetic surgery? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Our daughter and family just welcomed a new baby girl into the world. The boys in our family are now outnumbered for sure. I've witnessed how some of our girls often struggle with self-image and body issues. These issues are now being enhanced by social media. First Peter teaches us that it is not outward beauty that is important, but it should be that of our inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Studies indicate that young women are going under the knife for more cosmetic procedures in direct response to social media. Encourage the women in your life to practice self-compassion. Build them up. Help them find ways to be content in their own skin. True self-esteem is having confidence that I am who God says I am. For more on this, head over to our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you.
Thanks for joining us on this uh, first hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, we'll have follow-up information on uh, Father Dave's work. We'll have his book available on the online store and also linked to his blog where you can find his video series that uh, gives more explanations and, and uh, explorations on this idea of metanoia being more than a one-time event. Also, we'll have uh, some of the stories that Al used in his commentary at the start of the hour. In the next hour, we will be hearing more from Al on the new Tower of Babel and uh, what, what George Orwell meant when he wrote that at any given moment, there is an orthodoxy, a body of ideas that, that, of which it is assumed all right-thinking people will, assume, will accept without question. And also uh, talk with Father Brent Bowen about the meaning of lay vocation. And I uh, didn't want to miss this opportunity either to offer a congratulations to uh, two more members of the EWTN radio family, Evangelist Radio in Somerville, West Virginia, celebrating 13 years with EWTN, and Holy Family Communications in Shenandoah, Virginia, celebrating nine years with us. Congratulations from all of your friends here at EWTN. That's all for this hour. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more Crest in the Afternoon as we continue talking about the things that matter most. We'll be right back. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome back for another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. We thank you for spending some of your Monday with us and hope you all had a very pleasant weekend. As you can tell, this is uh, not Al, this is Brian Chainley, Al's producer, filling in just on the opens and closes. And uh, we'll be planning to be back with more tomorrow on Cresta in the Afternoon. In this hour, we will be hearing a commentary from Al on the new Tower of Babel. Uh, George Orwell once observed that at any given moment, there is an orthodoxy, a body of ideas of which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. What does this orthodoxy look like today? What are some so-called truths we are all supposed to accept? Uh, Al will be discussing that. Also, what does a lay vocation look like? The, uh, we'll be talking, you know, we've been talking ever since 2018, and if even earlier than that, about the co-responsibility of the laity, and that was a major theme in the final documents of part one of the Synod on Synodality. That document will also be used to help form the working document of part two of the Synod a year from now. And uh, the Church cannot fully reach its apostolic effectiveness unless we each discern our personal vocation. And that goes beyond just, I'm, my vocation is to be a parent. My vocation is to be a working person. My, my vocation is to be a priest. There's a lot deeper meaning to all of this, and we'll be discussing it with Father Brent Bowen. That's all coming up over the next two hours after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, October 30th. It's the Feast of St. Angelus of Aukri. Today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. 
Pope Francis is repeating his call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. In his Angelus prayer at the Vatican Sunday, the Pope also called for Hamas to release Israelis it's holding as hostages. In an emotional appeal for a ceasefire, Pope Francis said, quote, war is always a defeat. He wasn't responding to Pope Francis, but the Israeli prime minister says a ceasefire with Hamas would be a surrender for Israel. A calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Speaking to the nation today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu added he's committed to bringing the hostages home. He said Israeli forces have been going out of their way to avoid civilian casualties, while Hamas has purposely put civilians in harm's way. The United Auto Workers strike is over. UAW President Sean Fain. What we have accomplished together has turned this wheel around. When I see that wheel, I no longer see a union on defense in decline or under threat. When I see that wheel, I see power. The union reaching a tentative deal with GM that puts an end to negotiations after the strike began more than six weeks ago. The UAW reached an agreement with Stellantis over the weekend and with Ford earlier last week. And former Vice President Mike Pence is using a verse from the book of Ecclesiastes and explaining why he's dropping out of the 2024 presidential race. Saturday, Pence told a stunned crowd that the Bible tells us there's a time for every purpose under heaven. He followed by saying it's become clear to him that this isn't his time. With low poll numbers and fundraising totals, there was a question if Pence would actually qualify for the next Republican debate. From your Alvi Maria Radio that news desk, I'm Steve Clark. I'm Al Cresta. In the case of recent uh, converts to the Catholic faith, one of the questions that one of the issues that comes up is the creeping secularism, uh, progressivism that seems to be the tide seems to be rising, uh, and it's affecting uh, family life. It's affecting church life. It's affecting the world of business. Uh, and and um, the Catholic Church is often seen uh, as a bulwark, uh, as a place that can uh, resist those encroachments. I remember back in the 1990s when um, St. John Paul II worked out some kind of coalition with uh, the leaders of Muslim nations at a United Nations conference on population, and they managed to uh, push back against abortion and contraception. And I remember at that time, uh, Dr. James Dobson, who was a very influential evangelical Protestant, um, uh, had a very uh, focus on the family, very influential Protestant uh, program. Uh, I can remember him admiring what John Paul II had done. He said, you know, how come... We, by that he meant we evangelical Protestants, why can't we come together like that and affect that kind of change? So he recognized the institutional heft, the institutional strength of the Catholic Church. And, and that's right. I mean, that's one aspect of being in communion. Uh, we, we aren't just a single-generation church. We're a transgenerational church. And over time, Christ is doing things in his church. Uh, a lot of times people think that um, 
certain Catholic teachings or canons uh, are accretions uh, or extra baggage picked up over the centuries. Well, in some cases it may be, but when it comes to doctrine and dogma, most of the time these things are growths and proper developments of what was always understood within the church. And so the institution preserves that. Um, you've got to have wineskins uh, if you want to keep the wine. You've got to have a fireplace if you want to keep the fire, right? Um, so you've got to have structure as well as spirit. But this problem of an ever-encroaching progressive secular uh, creed is, is really hitting a lot of people. And I just, my thoughts on this are pretty simple. Uh, this is what we've seen throughout human history. Time and again, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is all about tribes of human beings organizing themselves together to build a kingdom that will satisfy all their desires without recognition of the God who created them. This is the Tower of Babel syndrome, and we're in the midst of it right now in the United States. We have a, a de facto, um, if not de jure, a civil war going on of ideas in the, in the United States. And uh, I'll say it again, there are those who have a Tower of Babel complex. They are trying to organize uh, a kingdom that will satisfy all their desires without recognition of the God who created them. And the 20th and the tw now the 21st century, I've seen some pretty spectacular uh, experiments in doing this. We've seen the rise of atheistic communism in Russia uh, with the Bolshevik Revolution and the formation then of the Soviet Union. Uh, we saw the rise of international fascism led by Hitler and Mussolini. What did Hitler promise? A thousand-year Reich, a thousand-year kingdom, a millennium. And now we see the Communist Party of China Reaching back, uh, for a while it looked as though China was softening a bit, but now it's hardened over again, and uh, um, President uh, Xi Jinping is reaching back to the Mao Zedong Revolution, uh, the heavy-handed dictatorship in governing uh, China, modern China. And here's the one that hurts the most. We now see the rise of a secularized progressive politically progressive United States of America. Uh, formally, you know, the United States is formally a Christian experiment in self-governance, which is now thought to have gone to seed, right? America was founded with certain understandings of ordered liberty, personal responsibility, the role of civil government, and a public order that was open to, was porous to, uh, the moral language of historic Christianity and Judaism. Uh, the idea that the United States of America should now be a nation in a high-handed rebellion against God makes me choke. Uh, I mean, there are some people who seem to think that the problem in America is simply between conservatives and liberals, between left and right, between Democrats and Republicans. Now, these are not unimportant divisions, so let me stress I do not think these binary distinctions are all morally moral equivalents. I'm not saying a pox on both your houses. That would be irresponsible. But these group distinctions are not the most important distinctions. The real division is between those who are being drawn to Christ and who are at various places along that journey 
and those who are fleeing him also at various places along the journey. Uh, Some are facing Christ, some are fleeing Christ. All humans are created in the image of God, and we are made for a loving relationship with our Creator. Uh, And we believe that Christians, uh, that any human being, will never find their full fulfillment apart from God. Uh, And those of us who are united to Christ by faith and baptism, who are united to Him in His mission of redemption, owe everyone we meet uh, the love and consideration that helps draw them closer to their eternal lover. You will find plenty of people who are drawing closer to Christ on both sides of the political divide, and you'll find plenty of people in active rebellion against God on both sides of the political divide. However, and I'll say it again, because I don't want to be misunderstood, I am not saying that it makes no difference how a person is politically aligned. I believe abortion is the morally defining issue of this generation. And so there's no way that I can treat a political party that champions abortion with the same respect as a political party that is formally committed to protecting the unborn. But I can treat all human beings with respect as men and women made in the image and likeness of God, regardless of their present political opinions. The Democratic Party is going to die. The Republican Party is going to die. But Marco Rubio, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, and Chris Smith are going to live forever. And what's at stake for each of them and for each of us is where we will spend eternity and how we made the path easier or more difficult for conversion to Christ. Um, C.S. Lewis once wrote, There's no, or you'll never, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. This dignity that Lewis is talking about, the dignity of the individual person, was a fruit of Western Christian civilization. Look over the history of ideas. Intellectual historians in the last few years have been actually writing on this very topic. We've talked to some of them on this program. Others we haven't, but the books are out there. The academic research is very strong. This idea of the dignity of the individual person is a fruit of historic Christianity. During World War II, uh, Winston Churchill said, we are waging a war for the preservation of Western Christian civilization. (laughs) Now, Just think how archaic those words would sound today on the lips of Joe Biden. We are waging a war for the preservation of Western Christian civilization. Now, since then, since Churchill made that statement, uh, the word um, Christian has been dropped. And now the word civilization is even being dropped. And even the word West is being or western is being treated as insignificant when compared with the global citizenship that progressives are urging on us this is the new tower of babel and it has a creed uh, the creed is a belief in universal brotherhood apart from god uh, it's a belief that marriage is a human invention and that it's probably served its purpose in human evolution and now we can create new institutions to deal with human romantic attachments. Uh, There's a belief that human nature is malleable, uh, 
and can be molded in whatever direction we decide to take. Because after all, we are now the evolutionary process conscious of itself, and we can choose to evolve in a new direction. Uh, There is a belief in the gradual diminishing of the nation-state. There's a belief in the priority of international institutions like the UN or the International Criminal Court. And among those who make up the so-called media elite, the so-called prestige media, that assortment of television networks, big city newspapers, high-tech aggregators, uh, this creed is often assumed, and at other times it's consciously consented to. If you're committed to beliefs about divine creation or divine institutions like marriage or a, um, uh, an unchanging human nature uh, or idea of a government under God, you're considered part of an older era whose time is passing. So there's a new orthodoxy in the land, and it is actually spreading lies about our historical past. It pretends that religious faith has been opposed to science, uh, which, of course, flies in the face of what modern historians of science have pointed out time and again. Uh, They also point out that religious faith has been the source of most of the world's violence. Simply not true. These are falsehoods so commonly repeated that they've become conventional wisdom. And again, I want to stress, you can point to historians of science to point out that there's no long-term pitched battle between science and faith. And you won't find political historians saying that religion has been the major source of historic violence. But facts are weak in front, in face of this new progressive creed. And George Orwell uh, once said, at any given moment, there's an orthodoxy, a body of ideas, which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. It's not exactly forbidden to say this, that, or the other thing, but it's simply not done in polite society. And anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. A genuinely unfashionable opinion is almost never given a fair hearing, whether in the popular press or in the highbrow periodicals. So this is what we're going through is not entirely new. Uh, the balance of you know power swings uh, from one side to the other, but Orwell's writing after the Second World War, uh, after again uh, we won what a great victory for the preservation of Western Christian civilization, which now get rid of the word Christian, get rid of the word civilization, and begin forgetting about the word West. And this is all happening within our generation our generation and a half. So we are currently in a serious civil war of ideas in this country. We need to fight it. And the trick to to, to do so is to fight it as spiritual warfare. In this war, we have enemies to love, not enemies to trash. We don't draw our identity from political parties. We draw our identity from the one who has already fought the final conflict and has the certainty of ultimate victory. And that can be our assurance. Nigeria has become one of the worst places in the world for Christian persecution, and it's common practice for terrorist groups to kidnap religious sisters, seminarians, or priests and hold them for ransom until their orders pay the money to get them free. And the last poll of the week, we wanted to know if you think that's a good idea. 
and about 75% said it's not a good idea and only increases kidnappings in the future. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and go down to the poll of the week. Who leads the church on its missionary path through history? The principal agent is the Holy Spirit, according to the Catholic Catechism. Urged on by the Spirit of Christ, the church must walk the path Christ trod, a way of poverty and obedience, service and self-sacrifice, even unto death. The blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians, says the Catechism. Throughout her history, the church has experienced the discrepancy between the message and some of the messengers. This is why she follows the way of the cross, a way of penance and renewal, to extend Christ's reign. The process of evangelizing involves bringing the gospel to ears that have never before heard it, establishing God's presence through Christian communities and eventually local churches. There will be times of defeat as the church touches individuals and communities only reached by degrees. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows, and and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. 
In a 2009 address to the clergy of the Diocese of Rome, Pope Benedict XVI reflected on the mission of the laity and introduced a, a new term into the church's uh, you know, vocabulary, that of co-responsibility, the co-responsibility of the laity. This is a phrase that we've used uh, for years now on this program, and one that I think is critical uh, for the uh, ongoing mission of Christ Church in uh, the United States and really globally. My guest, uh, Father Brent Bowen, is president of... <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> drop my notes here. He is a Dominican friar of the province of St. Albert the Great, where he also serves as a parochial vicar and director of evangelization at Purdue University St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Center. He's a speaker for the Catherine of Siena Institute, and he published an essay on co-responsibility, personal vocation, and charism discernment um, in the Homiletic and Pastoral Review, which is where it caught my attention. And Father Brent, good to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's talk about this. Uh, I was a, for years I served in evangelical Protestant circles for about 20 years, or served as a pastor for a few of those years, and uh, the idea of the, the, quote, ministry of the laity was, seemed to be second nature, at least in the, in the circles in which I moved. Uh, there was still a clergy-laity distinction that was made. But it was generally thought that um, all Christians uh, were responsible to carry out uh, works of service, works of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Uh, And when I returned to the Catholic Church, uh, it wasn't as, uh, it was actually something that had to be explained. Uh, Do you have any idea why that's the case? Sure, I think part of it is we as a church have a, a very well-developed understanding of um, how our church uh, is is successors to the apostles. And so we have a very well-developed theology of the ordained, and uh, as a result of that, uh, I think often we can uh, neglect much of what is already present in our church's teaching Uh, about the mission and the role of the laity. Um, It's especially present in many of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, for example. Sure. And, uh, you know, as you you point out, I think many of our our Protestant and Evangelical brothers and sisters, because they don't have such a strong emphasis on uh, apostolic succession and and, and understanding of really what the the priesthood is, it, it does leave them free to look for a, a, a an understanding of, of who they are as Christians. Yeah. yeah. And um, to be clear, those things are in our tradition as well. Right. It's just they have not been as well developed. Right. No, in our I, I agree. Tradition. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, that's, uh, but this is. I mean, the Second Vatican Councils really did spend time uh, helping to clarify uh, the responsibilities and role of the laity. Uh, one passage that you refer to in your um, article, the ministerial priesthood is at the service of the common priesthood. Uh, it's directed at the unfolding of the baptismal grace of all Christians. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. How is it that the ordained ministry is really meant to serve the uh, common priesthood of believers? 
But sure, you have a. Here's the thing: without the bapti- the the priesthood of the baptized, uh, there is no ministerial priesthood, and without the ministerial priesthood, there is no priesthood of the baptized, mm-hmm. right? Because we mm-hmm. do we. There's a reciprocity between those two um, those two things, right? They they need each other, right? We need the people of God to form their families into um, responsible uh, disciples of Christ, so that we can, uh, so they can discern the vocations properly. And if we're doing that, we shouldn't be surprised then to see vocations to the priesthood, to religious life, etc. And um, you know, the the proof that my vocation as a priest is bearing fruit is that you see lay people bearing fruit in the world. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And in, in, in their and in their own lives That's in the right. secular world. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that's what Vatican II is get at. And you know the the re, the 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 reference you made is is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church in uh, paragraph fifteen forty seven. Right. Like unless all of uh, are unless all of the baptized are actively discerning their vocations. And and looking to be fruitful in the world, then the the ministry of the of the ordained is never going to reach full effectiveness. Right, right. The whole church will never reach its full effectiveness. You mentioned in the world. Many people say, well, after the Second Vatican Council, there was a lot more lay involvement in parish life, and that uh, is this what it was meant by the uh, co-responsibility of the laity. I think it's part of it, right? So, yes, it, of course, lay involvement in the life of the parish and in the ministries of the parish is essential. And I think that that was true long long before Vatican II, right? Okay. Like, you look at many of the big movements of lay people, for example, Catholic Action, right, prior to the Council, right. and it was very clear that lay people recognized that they did have a responsibility to their parish. What Vatican II helps us to understand better is that the for the laity their ministry is primarily um, secular right their their apostolate is primarily secular because they are in places that the church can't be right yeah. they are called to an apostolic fruitfulness in the world in whatever context that God has called them to so yeah I mean any baptized uh, disciple of Jesus, who who is is living that relationship with God in the church, of course they're probably going to be attracted to some of their parish's ministries. But look, for example, at some of the greatest lay um, movements in the church in the last few hundred years, and a lot of those were not parish-based ministries. Right. right. So you know. Yeah. And so and, and and when you look at such clear examples of, of lay apostles at work, you begin to see what this looks like, you know? Give us uh, some examples. You have some examples in the article. Uh, I think people like to, you know, hear short vignettes. Uh, where, where do we see this kind of uh, effective discipleship uh, in the world? Yeah, certainly. So uh, one of the ones I talk about in the article, uh, and I love sharing this story, is uh, a woman who is one of my uh, the mother of one of my close friends, and she she's a geriatric nurse, 
And so she spends most of her days and women as they are in their final days and hours. And so she spends a lot of time, um, you know, helping them to, to be comfortable, to, to reduce their pain, et cetera. But she does a lot of holding hands and she does hugging families. And she does a lot of things that uh, wouldn't seem to be necessarily apostolic until you ask her, like, well, how do you, how do you accompany people in those different moments? And she just says, well, I just hold their hands and I tell people how much Jesus loves them. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> imagine being on your deathbed and, this, and, and a, a nurse says that to you, just right. how comforting that must be, right? Yes. Imagine the, the possibility of being reconciled to God in that moment. Yeah. You know, after after a life uh, well lived, or even a life maybe not well lived, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this woman is an example of someone bearing fruit in the world. Right? I might be able to come in as a priest and anoint them and have a good conversation with them, but this woman walks with them day day by day. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Very good. Uh, do you do you see? Uh, do you see conflicts at all here uh, between lay uh, vocation and the the ordained ministry? I mean, do, do people bump into one another at all? Bumping into each other a little bit, we weren't doing it right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, as a church, we've, yeah. we've always had to to work these things out together, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, of course, when it comes to parochial ministries, right? Things that are very obvious official ministries of a parish, of course that that needs to be uh, worked out under the direction of, of a parish pastor. But think, for example, of FOCUS, right? So the, the Fellowship of Catholic uh, University Students, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's run by lay people, right? right? And although they work in... Uh, conjunction with and and in kind of hand in hand with uh dioceses and bishops and pastors they themselves are uh somewhat independent of them in in, in respect to the direction that they take as an organization and things like that so you know yeah there's always going to be some back and forth and there needs to be uh, because as i said earlier both the the priesthood of the baptized and the ministerial priesthood have that reciprocal relationship. Right. 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 And and so there's always going to be some conflict. It, but but to recognize that the missions themselves are exactly the same. Right. To make Christ known better yep. in the world. Right. And, and again, I keep coming back to this: the apostolic mission of the church cannot be fulfilled without lay people in the world. Yeah. It just can't, yeah. Uh, yeah. because otherwise the only people that the Church would ever minister to are the people in our pews. Mm-hmm. And they're just, we, we simply cannot reach everybody. Right, right. L- let me come to this question then of discernment. Uh, lay people mm-hmm. uh, come, they hear Jesus say, follow me. They begin a path of discipleship. They are mm-hmm. being formed um, and then they understand that there's actually uh, giftedness. There's spiritual gifts mm-hmm. that are given them in a variety of settings uh, in order to build up the body of Christ. How does a person discern 
uh, vocation and then discern specific gifts? Sure. Uh, I'm going to reemphasize one point that you just made. I mm-hmm. think the first step is we have to make sure that we are in a relationship with God and following Him in the midst of the church, right? I'll tell you what, hold, hold, because... Father, hold it there. I got the music coming up under me. We'll come back and pick it up uh, right from there. My guest, Father Brent Bowen, we're looking at lay vocation. We're also looking at that phrase that we use so often here, co-responsibility of the laity. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, Teach Me to Pray, the free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. This program brought to you by the following nonprofit company. From Affirm Films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. You are in danger, Mary. This child. What is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem. Starring Fiona Palomo, Milo Mannheim, Lecrae, Joel Smallbone, and Antonio Banderas. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere, November 10th. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Father Benedict Groeschel. Oh, I love reverence. Wherever I go in the world, I usually go to visit the religious buildings. And no matter what I see, I see reverence. Awe. I've been in temples and mosques where I saw more reverence and awe of God than I see in Christian churches, even sometimes in Catholic churches. Oh, yes. Let me say it. When I was a boy, Catholics were much more reverent and respectful in church. You never, ever spoke in church. I was a young priest. A man had a heart attack at the beginning of Mass. I stopped the Mass. We prayed for the man. While the police were coming, the ambulance, they removed him from the church. He didn't die. Not one word was spoken. The police officers and the ambulance attendants who came whispered, respect. I wish it were true today. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Did you know that the church calls your family to be holy? It's true. Now don't freak out. The church isn't holy because the people in it are anywhere near perfect. 
it's holy only because Jesus is holy and because the Holy Spirit lives and works in it. And the same thing is true about your domestic church. Our families don't need to be perfect. We only need to open ourselves to God's grace so that we can share his love, healing, and forgiveness with each other and with the people we meet every day out in the world. Remember, holiness isn't restricted to grand gestures. It's as simple as doing ordinary, everyday things in a way that shows God's love. For more tips on living a holier life as a family, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Father Brent Bowen. We are uh, taking a look at this phrase, co-responsibility of the laity. As we closed off last segment, we were talking about how does a layperson discern uh, his or her vocation? Uh, how does one discover one's spiritual gifts? And uh, again, just where we left it, the first thing, of course, is to acknowledge uh, or actually come to a place of uh, encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Father, why don't you pick it up from there? Sure, yeah. I mean, once we are in a relationship with God and we are actively following Him, gradually, and, and I see this all the time in my own ministry as a priest, people become open to being used by God for His purposes, right? And so we, we become open to uh, the possibility that God has, in fact, called us each to a, a unique mission in life, uh, which is w- what we call that personal vocation, right? Mm-hmm. And when I say vocation here, I don't mean merely to marriage or to the priesthood or religious life or single life. What I, what I mean here is a, a unique, unrepeatable mission in each of our lives. And again, this is in our, our church's teaching. Um, one of the ways that we begin to unpack that, to begin to discern what our personal vocation is, to examine the charisms or the spiritual gifts that God has given each of us in our baptism, right? Mm-hmm. So um, these charisms, uh, sometimes people don't exactly know uh, what to make of this, but but we see this very clearly in... 1 Corinthians 12, for example, right? Mm-hmm. St. Paul talks about there are many gifts but the same Spirit. What he means here is these these superabundant graces that God gives us. St. Thomas Aquinas calls them gratuitous graces, right? Um, they're not for us. They're, for, they're meant for other people. Yeah. They're meant for the building up of the body of Christ. Um, and so... You know, Catholics, especially uh, lay Catholics, can really benefit from examining what these charisms are and begin to examine, well, which ones are present in my own life? Right. So uh, one of the things that the Catherine of Siena Institute talks about, which is, again, you mentioned I'm a speaker for them, mm-hmm. um, is that they, have, they offer a workshop called Called and Gifted. Yes, And sure. this, this workshop is meant to examine 23 of those charisms that are listed in, um, in the scriptures and in the traditions of the Church and to begin to help people understand what those are. And that's really the first step, is to really understand what the charisms are. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I mean, yes, I actually have uh, a list uh, that you can begin to explore and get a feel for it. Do people find when they do become, do they become more conscious of a gift that they've been given to serve others because they all of a sudden realize, oh, I'm already moving a little bit in that direction? Or right. do they have a moment of, oh, I, I never thought of that before. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So a lot of times when people learn about the charism, suddenly they have a name for the experiences that they've had in their lives, right? <laughs> right, right. So <laughs> we like to say at the at the Institute that sometimes we see our, we see life through the glasses of our charisms, right? So a person, for example, with a strong charism of mercy, right, feels very called to be with the poor, to be with people who are in need of food or shelter um, or friendship uh, in those moments, right? Mm-hmm. And so for them, that's a very normal experience, whereas someone without that charism, they might think it's important to serve the poor, but they may not feel drawn to that right. in the same way as a person with that charism. And so what happens is, is people begin to explore the charisms, and they begin to have a name for the experiences of their lives. They go, oh, <laughs> and they begin <laughs> to, to, to actively discern, okay, do I see this present in my life? Mm-hmm. And discernment is really the key here, right? It, you can't just say, well, yeah, I... I I have this gift, or I have I have this, or I want to have this gift, therefore I do. We have to actually test, experiment with those charisms. Mm-hmm. We have to intentionally put ourselves in situations where they will manifest yeah. and begin to examine, do I actually see the evidence of this charism in my life? That's right. It, ought there to be some sort of confirmation of, of one's giftedness uh, by... The, the the body of Christ. I mean, people get, you, mm-hmm. people begin to respond to you, uh, saying right. you've helped me in this area. Or sure, yeah, yeah. So you know, there's the subjective side. So there's the what does it feel like when I use this charism? Right, right. Um, because mm-hmm. if it's genuinely a grace given by God, then of course it's going to be an experience that is life giving for us. That's that, right we feel like we're being conduits of God's grace for others. Right? Yeah. I mean, you hear people sometimes um, but, say, I, I'm doing what I think God created me to do. Exactly, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, and that right there is com- it's possible confirmation of, of the charism at work, right? right? Mm-hmm. But then also, because it's grace, right, assuming we're cooperating with it well, we'll see results above and beyond what we would be able to do if we didn't have that charism, mm-hmm. right? Right. So we should expect a person uh, with a charism of, uh, I keep going back to this one because it's a very easy one to use, for a charism of mercy, to actually see that people's um, physical needs are met, right? That they receive a, a, a sense of, of, um, of, of God's healing and right? God's, God's presence through those people mm-hmm. to receive an experience of, of, of mercy through these people. We should expect them to be more effective at this than other people are. Right. Right. Now, how does this work out with married couples? Uh, do they, I mean, do they end up with complimentary gifts? I mean, I'm just curious to know if, uh, yeah. if this kind of thing works so, to draw them closer together. 
Yeah, all of the baptized have charisms. So if you're baptized, we know you have them, right? Yeah, like, that's it's right. Not a, you, you sometimes run into people and they're like, oh, I definitely don't have gifts. No, <laughs> this, this is a fact. You, if you were baptized, you have them. Right. And so, uh, for example, in, in my own parish, um, our parish deacon, he has a very strong charism of giving, right? He finds, he always asks the question, like, how much do I have to keep rather than how much can I give? Right. Like, and his, and his yeah. wife, um, God bless her. She's always like, Dan, we need to talk about this. Right. right, right. <laughs> so, um, but both of them, it's interesting. Both of them have also been given the charism of hospitality. Right. And so they often open their home to small faith sharing groups in their home. Yeah. And, um, they, they love to welcome their neighbors, for example, into their home and have dinner with them and break bread and talk about faith, right? These are things that they did long before um, Deacon Dan was, was even ordained to the diaconate. Mm-hmm. And when they went through Called and Gifted at my parish, they looked at each other and they were like, oh, that's what this is. And they finally <laughs> were able to describe, oh, using the language of charism, like this is what's going on. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Uh, now, uh, what role does uh, the local priest have, uh, the parish pastor have, in helping uh, laity uh, recognize those gifts? Sure. I, I think, first and foremost, we have to preach about it. Yeah. yeah. So we have to, pe- people have to know that they have a personal vocation that's, that needs to be discerned, and they need to know that they actually have been gift- given these charisms by God. And what I find is the more that I talk about it, the more intrigued people are. Because, again, they suddenly begin to think, well, maybe this is how God is using me. Right. Maybe this is what God has, has, has called me to do uh, in, in, in life. So that's the first thing, is just to be able to talk about it, to preach about it, to be able to encourage people when you see charisms in them, mm-hmm. and say, hey, uh, you're very good at this. Um, have you ever considered participating in this? Yeah. Right? Okay. And that might be, because a lot of parish pastors are trying to, you know, constantly find volunteers, that might be in the parish, but it might be elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It might be outside the parish boundaries, right? It might be uh, a mission that that person is called to in the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh I've noticed a number of parishes in southeast Michigan here have uh, used the uh, Catherine of Siena Institute's called and gifted uh, seminars, and uh, apparently they've had very good uh, response, very good results from that. So that's another thing that can be done, right? Certainly, yeah. And, uh, I mean, this isn't a commercial for the for the called and gifted process, but I highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I, sure. I think it's it's very enlightening when people go through... Uh, it's a three-part process. It's a workshop, um, and then it's a one-on-one interview with someone trained like myself to help people unpack some of the the charisms that they may have. Mm-hmm. And then the third part of it is a, it really an experimentation. Like, they choose one charism to uh, experiment with for six to eight weeks, and they come together as a small group and talk about how those experiments are going. Um, and... Just being able to, um, I sometimes talk about it as flexing their charism muscles. Right? Yeah, like yeah. they have to build those up, right? Like yep. they have to they have to learn how to discern these things, 
and then you begin to see people really come alive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, uh, let me go back to a point you made earlier about the, the gifts that are given. Uh, the Holy Spirit sovereignly bestows these gifts on us to serve others, right? This is, mm-hmm. there are gifts that can build us up as well, but the, the spiritual gifts that are commonly discussed are builds, uh, gifts that are given to build up the body of Christ. And right. so are those gifts then, uh, they can be, sir, they can be at work both in the world, but uh, definitely within the body of Christ as well. Of course, right. Yeah. So there are some charisms that are explicitly for the body of Christ. Right. So, for example, the charism of pastoring, uh, people get a little nervous when they hear that word because they think, well, I'm not a pastor. Right. But there have been studies that, you know, any canonical parish pastor can really only manage like 200 right. relationships. Yep. Right? Yeah. And let's just use my parish, for example. We have about 1,200 resident parishioner families but then we have 13,000 Catholics on campus, wow. right? Yeah. Uh, we have four priests assigned here, so let's say that uh, all of us can manage uh, 200 relationships. Okay, well, we're reaching 800 people. <laughs> you can see how God has to also bestow this gift of pastoring to others, right, yep. to help shepherd others into a relationship with Christ. Uh and and that is a charism that's explicitly used within our, our Christian community, right? And so they can be used both in the Church, but then also in the world. Yeah, very good. Uh, Father, uh, people, uh, I, mean, I know many listeners all of a sudden are thinking, hey, you know, maybe this is something I should uh, pursue. What would you suggest they do? Uh, I think the first thing they should do is pray. I mean, I'm always going to recommend that first. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and and really, again, ask the Lord to help them see where their gifts are, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, of course, I do recommend the, the Called and Gifted Workshop, um, but, but read about the gifts in the Scriptures. Again, 1 Corinthians 12 is a good place mm-hmm. to start. Uh, learn about what those are. Read about them. Uh, learn about what this objectively looks like in the life of a Christian. That's a really great place to start. Very good. Father, thanks so much. Wonderful talking with you. Thank you for having me. Father Brent Bowen uh, is a Dominican friar of the province of St. Albert the Great. also serves as parochial vicar and director of evangelization at Purdue University's St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Center. He also speaks for the Catholic, uh, Catherine of Siena Institute, which we've discussed on this program before. We'll have the article in the Cresta Guest Archive. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The virtue of purity and holy chastity is certainly a very important thing, but I think we can misunderstand this beatitude. As human beings in our fallen state, we tend to love things and use people we're meant to use things and love people. We can manipulate in relationships and we can try to control other people and we can focus on other people as objects. But to be pure in heart is to be in love. And ultimately, to be pure in heart and to be happy is to be in love with God himself as well. This beatitude calls us to have a focus on being open to choosing God, choosing life, to choose love. If God is not the ultimate end of our desires and our hopes and dreams, we will be the saddest of people. Let's say yes to God and choose His way. Be focused on His love and pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Do you have an unrelated twin, a doppelganger, walking around somewhere? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Scripture points to many who may have been actual twins. Doubting Thomas, one of the twelve apostles, may have been a twin. His surname is Didymus, which means double or twofold. Is it possible for each of us to have a twin of sorts, an unrelated person who so closely resembles us that they pass for a twin? Research cited by Dr. Peter Atia indicates that 99.9% of the human genome is identical across all humans. So it is possible that at least one of the billions on Earth could have a slight bit more genetic material that makes them look like me or you. But it isn't just looks. Even certain behavior studies tend to be more similar in lookalikes. The next time someone says you look like George Clooney, research says it's possible. For more on this, look for the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Thanks for being with us over the last two hours. And if you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on more of those conversations that we'll have, and we'll have the books and everything else used in today's topics available for you in the Crest Guest archives. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. And we'll be back tomorrow with some great stuff. John McGreevy from the University of Notre Dame joins us with a uh, very deep dive into a new book he's written that explores the history of the church from the French Revolution to today. And uh, lots of interesting conversations, I'm sure, that we'll have with him. Also, something a little bit different. Uh, Luella D'Amico, who's an English professor, will be looking at... Edgar Allan Poe's Catholic imagination. He was certainly not a Catholic, but there are some very interesting Catholic influences in his work. Uh, and this Halloween time of year, I thought it would be a fun time to talk about that. That's all tomorrow's Cresta in the Afternoon. Until then, have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.